Back in 1986, I had just graduated flight school with my wings in Meridian, Mississippi, my hometown. I got winged there. I got assigned Harriers, which was one of my, it was my choice. That was what I wanted to fly. Uh, it was a new plane back then, believe it or not. It wasn't that new, but it was still fairly new. Frontline uh, attack aircraft. It was unique in that it hovered. There was no other jet in the inventory like it. And you had to have like seven or eight qualifications coming out of the training command after you got your wings to even get it. And so I was real excited. So I show up up in Cherry Point, North Carolina, which is where you go through the Harrier training. I get up there, and just like all the other guys who had just graduated, some from Beeville, Texas, some from Corpus Christi, we, we were there uh, to be trained in the Harrier. And the Harrier, because it was fairly new, there was this, um, this atmosphere in the ready room, even though we had all now been Marines for over almost two and a half, three years. We were all first lieutenants. And so we go there and it's almost like we're back at the basic school where you go to for basic Marine training, just as an officer, you go there for six months. And because the, Har the Harrier, guys were salty and they're like other pilots would come in that would transition to the Harrier and there was just this sense of they didn't even really want us in the ready the ready room was where you would get ready to fly you would brief and typically even in the training command you would be there as a young pilot talking to older pilots learning you would be asking questions and just learning from them and so there was an atmosphere there uh, that was a little odd uh, almost like you're not good enough to fly till we pass you here. Even though you've just got your wings. It wasn't a welcoming kind of thing. It was like you got to earn your right to be here. And so we were going through the training and I was doing okay. But they show you all these crash films because the Harrier was the most deadly peacetime aircraft flown in U.S. history. More guys died flying that plane in peacetime than any other aircraft. So when you get there, they show you film after film, clip after clip of guys crashing, how they crashed, in hopes of letting you understand this is a dangerous aircraft. You can't be complacent. Uh, in most aircraft, you have what's called a 500-hour scare. In the Harrier, you have a 50-hour scare, okay? I mean, where you almost kill yourself. I mean, you just get a wake-up call, okay, that was close. So we're going through all these young guys. So they show us that. We're all like, oh, I hope I don't die, <laughs> you know, when I go out and fly today. So they work you up to be able, they have a two-seater that works you up to be able to go uh, solo. And so I'm going through the process, and I'm just plugging along. And two flights before my check ride, I fly with this guy. And it, there was a series of events that happened. And to make a long story very short, I got an unsatisfactory on my flight. I didn't know what I did wrong. You know, usually you know when you do something wrong. Like you know if, you, you, if you're rough or you know, but I didn't know anything was really that wrong with the flight, but the guy just said, I don't think you're ready. Well, so they recommend when you do that, you get two extra flights. So they give you extra training flights. So I'm supposed to fly extra training flight on a Saturday with the CO of the squadron. That's always comforting to go out. <laughs> you fly with the colonel who owns all these aircraft, or at least he doesn't own them, but he's responsible for them. So we have a 5.30 brief. I get up, I show up for the brief, we go through the brief, and the weather's just terrible. It's in Cherry Point, North Carolina, so it's raining. And so he goes, okay, we're going to cancel. So I go home. I jump back into bed because it's Saturday. This was going to be a Saturday flight, and I just go back and I wake up after a couple hours. I go to the gym. I'm working out, and after my workout, I get a call. Hey, the weather's clear. Come on down here and let's fly again. And now I've already checked out of the flight. Now it's Saturday. I thought it was canceled, so I go and so I'm flying with the CO. Have the worst flight of my life. There was no question I blew it on this flight. I was so far behind the aircraft 
like thinking I should have been, I mean, by the time I was thinking I should have done something, I was already past the point I should have done it. So he get, he said, boy, you're rough. What's going on? And we talk about it and then I do another flight. Well, I end up having a little bit of a confidence problem, but I still, I flew with other guys after that and they said, you're fine. And so I began to doubt myself and I began to pray about it because I was like, you know, I didn't know what to do because I, I didn't feel ready for the check ride. And so I go to the CO, I ask for a meeting, I go in, I say, hey, listen, I'm not ready for the check ride. I think I need two more training flights, two extra flights. He said, you're not going to get them. And I said, well, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to go out and crash an aircraft. And I'm just telling you, there's flights that I've been on that you said I did something wrong. I didn't even know what I did wrong. I mean, I'm not understanding. I felt like I was good, but you said, no, it wasn't good. So to make a long story short, he said, you got two options. You take your check ride or your drop on request, which means you're out of the program. And I go, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I'm not ready to get an airplane. I'm not going to crash an airplane. And so he said, well, I'll affect your DOR tomorrow. So he not only put in for my DOR, which was to drop, but also he put me in for a field flight performance review board, which meant I had a board of other officers that would look at my flight records and decide if I should even be flying in the Marine Corps. Wow. So it went from there up to the group level. At the group level, they said, well, we don't think, because I said, well, if I can't fly this, I want to fly F-18s, because that was really the only two choices you had, Harriers or Hornets. And, uh, they, and I had good boat grades in training command when I landed on the boat, and they said, no, we're going to recommend multi-seat aircraft, which is C-130 or helicopters. And I said, well, I don't want to fly those. I'm a jet pilot. I got my wings. I want to fly jets. And, and so it went all the way up. I go all the way up to headquarters Marine Corps. It took a year and a half. For me to go all the way up, I had a general review board. I had a general, four colonels, and a, a Navy captain on a board up at headquarters Marine Corps in D.C. that I had to go in, and they just drilled me for about three hours on questions. Then I had to go see DCS Air, who was the number three guy in the Marine Corps, three-star general. I had to sit in front of him for two hours. And when I went in front of him, the board up at uh, the general board, who had the general and the four colonels, recommended that I fly a multi-place aircraft was one option, that I go to infantry, or I'm asked to leave the Marine Corps. Those were the three options they recommended to the three-star general who would ultimately make the decision. Now this three-star general was such a tough general, you're supposed to wear green socks in the Marine Corps, but a lot of pilots would wear white socks. We just like wearing you know, athletic socks. Not a big deal, right? Except the regulations call for green socks. And so this general, if he saw you wearing white socks, which he frequently did, he would fine you $1,500 on the spot, which that's almost a month's pay back then. And, and so he was a tough general. And so I go in there, I pray before I go in there, and I'm just asking the Lord. I, I tried to be honest the way I was trusting the Lord through it all. <laughs> And I go in there, and it's like talking to my granddad. He, and even though I never met my granddad, it was what I would have imagined a granddad would be. He just, for two hours, just asked me questions. Was congenial, never felt threatened. I felt, I felt this incredible confidence in there. And so when I leave, the major, or the general says, my, my aide will let you know he had a major who was his aide, said, my aide will let you know in a couple of days what we decide. Remember what the three options were. To what? To, to, not, to fly multi-place, to be an infantry guy, or be out of the Marine Corps. That was the options. So, so you weren't able to fly for that year and a half before that? Well, I was flying, but I was flying different aircraft. I was flying like maintenance aircraft at Cherry Point, A4, Hair, uh, A4 uh, Skyhawks. And so, anyway, all that said, three days later, I get the call from the major. Uh, and by this time, yeah, he says, he says, he says Lieutenant, listen, um, the general's made a decision. 
you're going back to Cherry Point and you're going to be trained as a Harrier pilot. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, when he first told me that, I didn't even know what to think because I didn't think that was an option. And I told him that. He goes, well, that's what the general wants. And what DCS Air wants, DCS Air gets. It's his planes. It's his pilots. He controls them. And what he did was put the onus back on the colonel who ran the squadron who booted me out to train me. So who's, who was the pressure on when I go back? It wasn't on me. And one of my guys in the squadron there, that I, an instructor that I got to know, said, you don't have any pressure on you. It's all on us now. And, and listen, and, and the, to be honest, when I got back, I breezed through. It was, I didn't have an unsat flight. But here's what happened that I didn't know. And originally, when I went through, I was scheduled to go to Yuma, Arizona. But Yuma was still getting their aircraft. They didn't even have a full complement squadron out there yet. They didn't have enough planes to, to fulfill a squadron. And so when I came through, all the guys in my original class that were supposed to go to Yuma didn't go. They stayed in Cherry Point and they got reassigned to other squadrons. But because my original orders to, were to Yuma, when I came back and had that year hiatus, they were able to get their planes, so I end up going to Yuma which that's where I had my bird strike. That's where I end up meeting Pat Wheeler, who was a good friend, who was in the training command as the operations officer, as an instructor first. Then he goes out there. We become best friends. I end up leading him to Christ over time. We go on cruise together. And all that wouldn't have happened had I completed the first time. But I didn't know that at the beginning. As I was going through the trial, all I knew is, man, this is terrible. You know, I, I mean, all the things that I described to you were not fun to go through at all. And my wife and I are trying to figure out what we're going to do, where we're going to live, if I'm even going to be in the Marine Corps. And so God had a plan through it all. It was His providence. And that's the thing. Providence is different from a miracle. Providence is when God uses the natural to accomplish His purposes. Where a miracle is where He does something supernatural to intervene in the natural. They both are supernatural because God had to work. I mean, for that general to say, you're going to go back to the very place this colonel said, we, we don't want you anymore. I mean... That doesn't happen. I'm just telling you, it doesn't happen. It, it did happen, though, because that's what God wanted. So as we look at this text today, I want you to think about God's providence in your own life. You may not see His providence right now, but it, you won't see it sometimes till after you get to a point to where it makes sense and He says, this is why I had you go through all this. Does that make sense? And so... As we look at this text, really, there's just two, like I said, there's no imperatives, no real theological things here uh, that we're looking at. We just see that God reveals His care. We have a God who cares about us. And He reveals His care, first of all, through His supernatural providence for us. We can know He cares. How do you think I felt after the day I graduated from that training squadron being then going out to Yuma, Arizona. Do you think my faith in God was stronger or weaker? It was all. It was stronger. I, I, it was a God who cares, and through it all, He was my rock. He was there. But second, we see that God reveals His care through His supernatural plan. When we are able to look back and see, oh, that's why that happened. We don't always get to see that. Right. But sometimes we do. Remember last week, where's Paul at? He just got through defending himself to the Sanhedrin, right? Now from this point on, Paul is an ambassador in Christ. He, he's Christ's ambassador in chains. And if you remember last week, he's in front of the Pharisees and the, uh, the Sadducees 
And they were the spiritual and civil ruling authority in all of Israel. They're like the Supreme Court and the high church in one. They just combined it all. And Paul defended the Gospel and we saw a man who was submissive to God's Word, who basically was secure in the resurrection, the hope of Jesus. We saw that. And we saw a man who was strengthened by God's presence last week. This week, as we go through the rest of 23, we're still seeing how God uses Roman soldiers to protect Paul. Again, this is mind-blowing, really. Not so much for us, because we don't live under Roman rule. But when you think about what God did, this would be like the third or fourth time they rescued Paul instead of just letting them tear, tear each other up. You know, get out there and tear him up. They, they rescue him. So God's plan, guys, is unstoppable for His children. His plan for you is unstoppable. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what Satan throws your way. It's unstoppable. And His methods are supernatural. Even if it's providence or a miracle. There are a lot more providential supernatural acts than there are miracle supernatural acts today. But His providence is just as important. So as we look at this, I'm going to read through 12 through 30 and then 31 through 35. And we're going to look at, as we go through 12 through 30, how God cares for us through His supernatural providence and then 31 through 35 through His supernatural plan. So starting in verse 12, where we left off last week, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and they bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, keep in mind what's going on here. This would be like a criminal going up to the Supreme Court. Hey, listen, we're going to kill this guy. And they're telling the spiritual and the civil authorities what they're going to do and getting them involved in the plot. And the worst part is they go through with it. They do what they say. And so the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and he said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they've killed him. Now, how do you think Paul felt when he heard that? All he's gone through. And now he's got 40 guys that have sworn an oath. He understands the meaning of an oath of a Jew to kill. And now they're ready and waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. 
He didn't put in there the fact that he was about to beat him, did he? Uh, he didn't. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the, their council, and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Again, pronouncement of Paul's innocence here. He's saying this guy ain't done anything worthy of death. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers, also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. These are God's words to us today. God reveals his care through his providence. We see it in, first of all, these Jews made an oath to kill Paul. We saw in verses 12 through 15, no food, no drink. And the spiritual leaders, the ones who really should have said, hey, don't do this. This is not the way to do it. Had Paul been convicted of them of anything? Really? No, because they couldn't even really have a hearing when, when they were in front of the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, they were violently opposed to each other, so much so that they, they wanted to rip Paul apart, was the fear of the centurion. But he hadn't really still been charged with anything. There had been false charges made against him, but they sanctioned something that was wrong. Why? Because Ananias was evil. He was evil. And we see, and, and Paul's nephew heard about the plot. How would he have heard about the plot, by the way? Think about it. This is not something they're broadcasting all over the town. He would have had to have been there. So either he was part of the plot or somebody he was really close to had invited him to come and be part of that. So he's there. He might not have known what was going on until he heard what they were going to do. And he goes, well, that's, that's my uncle. That's my, that's my mom's, that's my mom's uh, brother. I can't let him do that to him. And so that is God's providence of having him there at that moment, right? He was there when he needed to be. It was God's providence. Was he... Um... Because Paul was um, like an enemy of the Judaizers, <clears throat> was his family in a... Paul said, I suffered the loss of all things. Right. So a lot of people, a lot of commentators believe even his family disowned him. Remember, right. okay, he was the son of a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, plural, which meant it was part of him. So more than likely, Paul lost his family when he started following the way. But again, this is God's providence. God's providence, one, that the, the nephew was there. God's providence that the Romans would even let a young man come in to talk to him. Think about that. That the Romans even would entertain this young guy going, hey, can I come see my uncle? They let him come in. And so he came in and he talked to Paul. Maybe it was because they almost beat him. Maybe it was because they knew that they shouldn't have almost beat him and they shouldn't have bound him. So even that was God's providence, guys. So can God use terrible things in your life, hard situations that you're going through in your life in the future? You bet. You bet. It's God's providence. In verse 17, when Paul talked to the centurion, the centurion then goes to the Chiliarch of the tribune, and again, this is God's providence that the, the Chiliarch would care. He cares about Paul. I mean, he could have dismissed it. Oh, he doesn't, this young guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But he listened again. And what do they do? Verse 23 and 24. 200 
soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. 470 of the 1,000 guys that were there, he dispatched to take one guy. One guy. And you go, well, why did they need 40 guys? Well, if one guy did it, that one guy would be executed. But if there were 40, the, the Romans may not know who did it. But even if they did, the Romans would not want... Remember, things were tight with Rome right now as far as like they were... They didn't want any uprisings. And so this guy wanted to get him out of there. He wanted to get him... Where was their security? Where was their most secure place? Down in Caesarea. Caesarea was like their main governor's place. They had one in Jerusalem, but their main place was down there at Herod's Praetorium, Herod's palace that he had built for Caesar down there. And that's where the governor kind of stayed most of the time. And so he got him there. He got him halfway there to Antipatris, and then he sent most of them back. He just let the horsemen take him the rest of the way because he had to get them back there to do it. And Claudius Lysias, who we now we know, this is the name of the Chiliarch, the Tribune. Claudius Lysias sent this letter. And by the way, how did he write that letter? How did Luke write what was in that letter like that? Did he? Luke wasn't with him during this time, was he? Maybe the Holy Spirit just inspired him to write it, just like the rest of writers write stuff they wrote from inspiration. But he wrote what was in the letter for our benefit to see that Claudius Lysias was one. You see the humanity of it and that Claudius Lysias... Do we like to present ourselves in a good light? And he writes in there like, hey, I saw this guy. He's a Roman citizen. I knew he was getting... Taken care of, so I jumped in and took care of him, right? Is that really the way it happened? No. But he presents it. But he says in the letter, what? This man's done nothing deserving of death. And he's a Roman citizen, so he writes that. He just says they're upset about the law. I discovered the plot, I sent him to you. God's supernatural providence, all through verse 12 through 30. You know what? Is God's name even mentioned? No. His name's not even mentioned. Is there a book in the Bible? Actually, there's two. Bible trivia. There's two books in the Bible where God's name's not mentioned. Anybody? Song of Solomon and Esther. You got it. That's right. Song of Solomon and Esther. Esther came to my mind when I read this, right? Esther is a book that was written uh, and it tells the history really of Purim, which is a holiday they celebrate, but it tells about how God delivered His people using an orphan, a captured orphan girl. And she's the one that delivers, uh, delivers the Jews from genocide. An orphan, Nobody would say... Well, if we're going to deliver the Jews, we need, we need a captured orphan girl. Her parents were captured under the Babylonian exile and her cousin, Mordecai. They were brought in, into Babylon and basically they were then brought to Persia. And if, if you go back and look, you remember the, the dreams in Daniel and, and the whole prophecy... Babylon, the kingdoms, the, the great kingdoms of the world. It's Babylon, and then Persia, and then what? Greece, and then Rome. Right? And at this time, if you read in the Bible, Ahasuerus was the king of Persia, but he was also known as Xerxes. And Xerxes was the he Xerxes was the son of Darius I think I think I'm I think I'm I'm got because I'm a little fuzzy on the history because there's 
there's two or three different points of view, but they're related to Cyrus the Great, who ended up telling the Jews, go back and rebuild. Do you remember that? Cyrus the Great told him to go back. Then I, th- I think Darius was the nephew of Cyrus the Great. Some people think he's the son. Some people said he's the nephew. He's a relative. Let's just say he's a relative of Cyrus the Great. He ruled. And then there was Xerxes who ruled over Persia. The problem with Darius and Xerxes is what happened, David, my history major. Who, who was around during that time in Greece? Alexander the Great who kicked their rear ends. And Xerxes had, if you read in Esther, if you go back and read, there's 127 provinces it says he, he rules over. And so he's in the middle of a war planning strategy in, in uh, uh, Esther 1. He's having this summit of all these leaders. And for 180 days, six months, he's having this summit. And at the end of it, they celebrate with a feast the big victory they're going to have. And he says, everybody start drinking. Celebrate. If you want to drink, you can. If you don't want to drink, fine. But we're going to drink and have a party. This big, just orgy, party, whatever. And he says, after he's been drinking a few, hey, bring my wife Vashti out here. This is all in in Esther chapter 1. Bring Vashti out here so that Vashti, I want everybody to see how good looking she is. Pretty much. Vashti wouldn't have anything to do with it she refused the king and by the way in that culture you didn't do that you didn't do that and she did that she said no and in chapter 2 of Esther we're introduced to Mordecai now there's something interesting guys this is why it's important to read the whole Bible when you see names when you see dates when you see numbers you might want to say is there another place in the Bible, this is mentioned. Because as we're introduced to Mordecai, it says, Mordecai, the son of Kish. The son of Kish. Do you guys know anybody else that was a son of Kish? King Saul. The first king of Israel. Is that important? Of course it is. That's why it's written. It's written for us to know there's a connection between Mordecai and Kish. All right? And so as we look at that, we're also introduced to Esther in chapter 2. Her name was Hadassah in Hebrew, but in that language, it was Esther. That happened a lot. They would change the name. And, you know, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That happened when you were taken captive. So these were cousins that had been taken captive, and now they lived in Persia under Xerxes' rule, and Mordecai was about 15, 20 years older than Esther, and Esther's parents had died. So he did what any good Jew would do. He brought in this orphan girl into his family and raised her like, she, like he was her father, even though he was a cousin. But back then... If you had 15, 20 years on somebody, there was a respect for that authority that he would care for her. And so, in verse 9 of chapter 2, it says that after this whole Vashti thing, the king said, you know, you're not going to be queen anymore. And so his advisor said, why don't you have a beauty contest? So they got literally hundreds of women from all over. They would just go out Hey, go get me some good-looking women. So they just go on place to place, and guess who they snatched up? They snatched up Esther. But it says in 2.9 that God gave Esther favor with the king's servant. His name was uh, Haggai. Haggai, H-E-G-A-I. But again, this is God's providence, right? That, that Esther, of, out of 400 women, Esther would have favor with this guy. And Esther did not share that she was a Jew because Mordecai had instructed her not to. Why? Because the Jews, after the whole Egypt thing, you know, it was a bad deal for them with some of the countries. So he said, don't disclose that. Again, God's providence. 
And then in verse 17, it says, Esther stole the heart of the king. He saw Esther because he was bringing all these virgins in there, these young women. And he's now think about it. To make a difference out of 400 something women, you got to be pretty special. That he would say, that's the one. Again, God's providence. It's God's providence all the way through. But at the end of chapter 2, something interesting happens. Mordecai, Esther's at the. In, up in the palace, Mordecai's up there every day checking on her. Hey, that's my, that's my daughter, basically, up there. Uh, I'm just checking on her. And because she had favor with uh, Haggai, and because she had favor with the king, it probably was, she probably said, hey, that's my, my it's really my cousin, but he's, he's raised me like a dad. He's just checking on me. You can imagine what would have been happening. And so as he's at the gate, he hears a plot. Two of the eunuchs that serve Ahasuerus, two of them plan to kill him. And he hears it. And he tells. And guess what? It's recorded in the royal record. Again, God's providence. God's providence that he was there. God's providence that he told it got credited to him. And God's providence that it was written in the royal record. Right. Then in chapter 3, we're introduced to a guy named Haman. Haman the Agite. The Agagite, actually. The Agagite. It mentions the Agagite in chapter 3 and chapter 8. It puts that on his name. Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. Why? Why? I can't remember what it is. Okay. Alright, just like Mordecai, the son of Kish, Haman, the Agagite. Why is it saying that? What is that qualifier? Well, you got to go back to 2 Samuel. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 15. Actually, you got to go even further back to Deuteronomy. Whoa, wait, you got to go even further back to Exodus. God's people, when they were going out of Egypt and going to the promised land, there was a group of people that opposed them that called the Amalekites. In Deuteronomy, God cursed the Amalekites to extinction. And in 1 Samuel, He told Saul, King Saul, go wipe out the Amalekites. Kill them all. But who did He spare? King Agag. So you see what's going on here? You've got Mordecai, the son of Kish, like figuratively speaking, he's from that line. You have Haman, a son of the Agag, King Agag, down the line. And they're against each other. Like the Hatfields and McCoys, it never ended. Hagag probably, I mean, um, not Agag, Haman hated the Jews. He had a reason to hate the Jews. He was an Amalekite. He was an Agagite. He was from Agag's line. That's why that's in there. And so, in Exodus 17, like I said, the Amalekites attacked Israel. Deuteronomy 17, they were cursed to uh, extinction by God. And in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul was supposed to kill Agag, he didn't. He didn't. Samuel did. Samuel hacked him up. But what does that tell you? There were other people that survived. Because Saul did not obey God. And so, this guy Haman was the number two guy in the kingdom under Xerxes. Xerxes elevates him. He's walking through. He's full of pride. And he walks by Mordecai. Mordecai, everybody else is bowing down. Mordecai does not bow. Drives him crazy. He was angry. And he convinced the king to issue an edict to kill all the people. To just wipe out all the Jews. Because he knew Mordecai was a Jew. It was, he didn't just want to kill him. He wanted to kill anybody that was like him. Has that happened before? 
Was this somebody else that wanted to wipe out all the Jewish men? How'd that work out for Pharaoh? Not very good. You see, Satan is always trying to destroy God's plan from the very beginning. He thinks if he can wipe out the Jews, he can do it. And if you go uh, to verse 13 you, uh, of chapter 2, you see he issues that edict. I'm sorry, chapter 3. And so what happens in chapter 4 of Esther? There's great mourning. All the Jews around the provinces are mourning. They're, they're mourning. Mordecai is mourning. Esther sees him mourning. What's going on? She sends clothes to him. Change clothes. Don't wear those uh, you know, sackcloth and ashes. Put these clothes on. But he would not. And she says, why are you mourning? And she tells him. And he says, listen, you need to go in and talk to the king. And she goes, I hadn't even seen him in 30 days. And if you just go into the king's presence without being summoned, it's death. Unless he holds out the golden scepter. And she goes, I can't do that. And he goes, listen, you know what? If you keep silent and you don't do that, God's going to raise somebody up. That shows Mordecai's faith in God's plan. God's going to raise up because he had made a promise to Abraham, didn't he? Through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. They're going to have a land. They're going to do this. But he says, if you don't speak up, he'll raise somebody else up. You're going to die and, and you, your family name will end. But how do you know, Esther, that he didn't raise you up for such a time as this? God's providence, Esther. And so... She said, listen, go gather the Jews fast. Well, fasting is associated with praying. You don't fast unless you pray. That's the whole idea. So she said, go pray for three days. And then she said this. She says, then I will go. And if I die, I die. This was a young lady whose conviction outweighed the consequence. Reminds me of Paul. And you see God's providence again in her life. Well, she approached in chapter 5 of Esther. She goes in and the king holds out the golden scepter. God's providence. God moved the king. Esther! I haven't seen you in a long time. What do you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She must have been a good looking woman is all I can say. <laughs> it's crazy what men will do for a good looking woman. I'll give you half of my kingdom. What do you want? Oh, I just want to have a banquet. Is what she said in chapter 5. You and Haman. So they have a banquet. At the banquet, Haman and Ahasuerus, they're eating. I'm going to call them Xerxes. It's easier to say. Xerxes and Heyman are eating. Yeah. In my Sunday school class, we called him King A. Yeah, King A. <laughs> so a lot of people just refer to him as Xerxes. But, but the bottom line is, they're eating. And, and, and during the middle of the feast, the king goes, Esther, this is amazing. Hey, what do you want? Like, why are you wanting to do this? Like, tell me. I, I'll give you half my kingdom. He's hoping to get lucky that night, right? And uh, she said, I want to do another feast tomorrow. And so, again, God's providence. He says, okay. Haman leaves that. He's thinking he's the best thing since sliced bread. I was with the king and the queen, just us. And they want me to come back tomorrow. He's walking home. Mordecai's there. He doesn't pay him the time of day. And he gets angry about that. He forgets about what he was just so excited about, and all he can think about is the fact that Mordecai will not bow to him. He goes home, he's complaining to his wife, Zeresh, and their friends. They say, build a gallows. They build a 50-foot gallows, put a noose on it, they're going to hang. So the next day, he goes back to Xerxes to ask him for permission to kill Mordecai. Only by God's providence then that night the king couldn't sleep and by God's providence he says hey 
Bring me out the royal records. Let me see what's been going on. And by God's providence, they bring him. Listen, they've been keeping records for a long time. So it was God's providence that picked the very one that had Mordecai's name in it. And by God's providence, he didn't fall asleep reading those boring records. He read it and was impacted and said, hey, what have we done for this guy who saved my life? And by God's providence, guess who shows up at the time he's thinking about honoring that guy who saved his life? And he says, who's here? Haman. Okay, get Haman to come in here. Haman, what should we do for somebody the king wants to honor? So Haman's thinking, well, there's nobody he'd want to honor more than me. I'm the number two guy in the kingdom. So you should put him on the king's horse, put the king's clothes on him, let everybody praise him, give him a parade. So imagine Haman's surprise when by God's providence he says, go do that to Mordecai. That's one of the greatest... That is such a great thing. Within 24 hours, Haman's world turns upside down. He's going to ask for Mordecai's life and God says, no, 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 no. That's my boy. That's my child. He's going to be honored. And he gets the king of Persia to do it. (laughs) And then, after that, they go to the second banquet. And so he's feeling pretty blue already, but he goes in there, and the king goes, hey, Esther, again, what do you want? Why are we doing all this? I just want my life to be spared, king. What? My life and the life of my people, would you just spare it? Please help me. I I mean, if you were just condemning me to slavery, I could take that. But my life and the life of my people, I'm begging you for. Because people want to kill us. Who wants to kill you? That evil Haman right there. Imagine that mic drop moment. That was a big deal. The king was so angry. By the way, he had a temper problem, didn't he, David? He was so angry... He went out, stormed out, because he just was so angry. He didn't probably want to do anything right in front of his wife. And when he comes back in, Haman immediately, when he storms out, goes and starts begging Esther. And you know, you can see the, the back and forth. And the king comes in, Are you going to assault my wife right here in front of me? Take him out. Take him out right now. Hey, king, he built a gallows to hang Mordecai on. Do you believe that? The guy that saved your life, put him on the gallows right now and sends him to the gallows. And then he tells Mordecai, Mordecai, issue any order you want. Or Esther, you guys issue anything you want to write. Here's my signet ring. Let the, I can't revoke what I put out, but you tell your people they can defend themselves. And he sealed it. They sent it out. And on the day that that was supposed to happen, because it was going to be a day where all the Jews were going to be killed. On that day, they killed thousands and thousands of people defending themselves. And it was okay, because it had been okay by the king. Mordecai ends up being the number two guy in all of Persia under Xerxes. What was the difference? God's providence. And just like in Esther with Paul, God sent 470 troops to protect him and then takes him to where? Herod's Praetorium. How was Paul going to get to Rome? He didn't know, but he knew God wanted him there. So he goes to Caesarea, this great city built. It was the great port city. And he was there for, I think, around two years. And as he was there, he was witnessing the people there. And yet he was housed where? In Herod's Praetorium. That was the, that's like the governor's palace. That would be like taking a criminal and putting him up. But they didn't view him as a criminal. They viewed him as a Roman citizen that these Jews had a problem with. So God's plan continues to unfold. I had a whole bunch of verses, and I know we're out of time, but it goes all the way back to Genesis 12. I just want to read a couple of them. Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through the 
You, all the families of the earth, are going to be blessed. Over in Isaiah 42, we, we, we looked at this last week. Isaiah 42. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and I will keep you and you will be what? A light to the nations. Daniel 7. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. John 10, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. So the Gentiles were always apart. So... So God's plan is unfolding. But what about you? What about your role? 1 Peter 2.9, you are what? You are a chosen race. It makes me want to dance. But you're a chosen race. <laughs> a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession that you may proclaim His excellencies the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. We are to be His ambassadors. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And what are we to be? Ambassadors. As God Himself is entreating people through us. He's inviting people through us. He gave us that ministry. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. So, as we leave today, think about this. Am I struggling in any area to believe that God is in control? Is there any area of my life right now that I'm really struggling to believe that? How does God's care of Paul and Esther influence me? Does it? Or do I just write it off? I find that a lot of times... I read a story like that or I read about Paul or I read Esther and it just goes to the back burner when I go through a hard time because I go, well, yeah, but that was then. It's not really going to happen now. And that's wrong. The same God that gave providence to them can give providence to you and me today. Why is, or what is God's ultimate plan for me? I just read it to you. 1 Peter 2.9, 2 Corinthians 5. We are His ambassadors. We are to proclaim His excellencies. We are to walk in the light and share His light. Am I following God's plan? Or am I following my plan? Our life purpose, guys, is ordered by His sovereignty. There is not one thing that happens to you that goes outside of His sovereignty. So, no matter what it is, my encouragement to you remember Esther remember Paul and remember he cares he cares cares he cares David will you close our time in prayer